The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. As a result of the review of the above-noted records, including the coroner's file, autopsy photographs, and report from the White Bear Lake Police Department, it is my impression that this case represents a homicide. As a result, I have filed an affidavit to amend the cause and manner of death in the case of Dennis Jurgens. The amended immediate cause of death will be listed as peritonitis due to perforation of the small bowel due to multiple traumatic injuries consistent with battered child syndrome. The manner of death will be listed as a homicide. From a death in White Bear Lake by Barry Siegel. Welcome back to episode 51, The Revolution, on Barry Siegel's A Death in White Bear Lake, Part 2. In Part 1, we learned of the death of Dennis Jurgens at three and a half years old, and the heartbreak of his biological mother, Jerry Sherwood, learning about this 16 years later. Asking questions, Jerry Sherwood believed her son was murdered, and she wasn't alone. Square in the spotlight were Dennis's adoptive parents, Lois and Harold Jurgens. But why wasn't this prosecuted back in 1965? Right, warning. This is a really disturbing case. I cried last episode just trying to get through it. It's just so heartbreaking, but important. And as always, please read this powerful book. On Good Friday, 1965, Two days after Dennis Jurgens' funeral, White Bear Lake officer Bob Vanderwist and Sergeant Pete Karlchuk went to interview Lois Zerwak Jurgens' parents about Lois's psychiatric history and her time at Crestview Sanitarium. Had Lois, quote, appeared to be psychotic? Mrs. Zerwak replied, definitely. Mr. John H. Zerwak said he thought his daughter, Lois, needed help for a possible mental condition and expressed concern that Mrs. Jurgens might try to harm herself, end quote. So I had to ask, is Lois insane? Well, if she's covering up a crime, lying to conceal her guilt, if Lois knows she's done wrong, then she's not legally insane. Right, this is the legal standard going back to the McNaughton decision in 1843, Britain, and then applied in America. At the Ramsey County Attorney's Office, a meeting took place, including Beatrice Bernhagen, Director of Social Services, Bertrand Poritsky of the Ramsey County Attorney Juvenile Division, and Paul Lindholm, Assistant Ramsey County Attorney. Based on all the known facts, there was evidence that Dennis Jurgens had been abused, and there was still another boy living in that house, his brother, Robert, age five. Investigators feared the mother might turn on Robert. Question, should they get Robert out of there? Beatrice Bernhagen was decisive. Quote, let's get that boy out right away. End quote. Lindholm had already drawn up a petition asking the juvenile court for an emergency removal order. 
Koritsky drove over to Judge Archie Jingle's home, where they interrupted both their Good Friday and Passover Seder. After a round of apologies, Judge Jingle signed the order removing Robert Jurgens from his parents' home for his own safety. Harold went into shock when Sergeant Pete Carlchuk came to take Robert, offering no resistance, no tears, just muffled talk between the couple as Lois got some of Robert's things together. The confused little boy went quietly with Vanderwist. At St. Paul Anchor Hospital, social services saw what Lois packed for her son, a rosary, prayer book, and a picture of St. Francis of Assisi. Mm, right? I would have packed very differently for my child under these awful circumstances. But Lois, as usual, is only thinking about her needs, not Robert's. Robert told the social worker that his brother had died of hunger, and I have to wonder why five-year-old Robert would think that. When offered candy, Robert refused it, quote, my mother wouldn't like that, end quote. Pete Karlchuk and Bob Vanderwist were confronted by Lois's brother, their boss, Lieutenant Jerome Zerwak, who wasn't charming this go-round. Bob had reported to Chief Armstrong that Jerome Zerwak, quote, said to Sergeant Karlchek and myself that he would do everything within his power to get Lois off, end quote. Both Karlchek and Vanderwiss told this to Sergeant Howard Markham and Lieutenant Buzz Harvey, colleagues, as well as Donald Thompson, a neighbor. Later, Vanderwiss would repeat this under oath. As usual, Jerome Zerwak later denied he ever said this to them. The investigators now became anxious about getting signed witness statements before the Zerwak family began backtracking, only it was already too late. Arriving at Lois's sister's, Sharon Kopp's home, she blocked them at the door, quote, on the advice of their attorney, they were not going to give us a signed statement that could be used against them in a civil case, end quote. Sharon's parents, Bev Zerwak, would also clam up. Well played, Jerome. Nevertheless, the White Bear officers wanted to review Sharon's previous statement. Yes, Lois was very strict with Dennis. Yes, Lois was very religious. During a phone call, Lois commented to Sharon Cobb about Dennis dribbling in his pants when using the bathroom and that she was going to see to this. Sharon overheard sounds of blows being struck with Lois yelling, a child screaming, begging not to be hit anymore. This had affected her so badly, she dropped the phone and went into another room so as not to hear any more. This was about two weeks prior to Dennis's death. Sharon Kopp also told them Lois used a clamp-type clothespin that she clipped onto the end of Dennis's penis when he was kneeling on a broom handle, reciting rosary after rosary. Sharon said Lois laughed as she told her about letting Dennis remove the clamp himself. All right, how sick? Is this some kind of twisted potty training tactic? Clamping his penis shut? Powerful remarks, but this was written in the officer's report that Sharon Cobb refused to sign. She could deny ever saying any of this. And this refusal to sign was repeated with all the rest of the Zerwax, as Harold and Lois, quote, retreated into the silence behind a lawyer's shield, and those who did talk now had little to say, end quote. Only two couples from the Norton branch of the family signed statements, along with neighbors Ivan and Gladys DeMars. 
Vanderwiss was struggling to cope with this case now. It took him hours to calm down after coming home, asking his wife Kay over and over, quote, why doesn't someone stop this? Isn't someone going to stop this? End quote. Delusional Lois. A week after Easter, she called Father Reiser, wanting a recommendation as they wanted to adopt another child. Father Reiser was as happy to help them now as he was back in 1959 when they adopted Robert. Dennis's death was a terrible thing, but the Jurchens were a nice, ideal family. But at the Ramsey County Welfare Department, everyone else was not enthusiastic. Beatrice Bernhagen briefed their team on Robert's removal from the home, updating caseworker Norma Potter, who now closed the Georgian's home study until the pending matter was satisfactorily resolved. It was now up to protective services to resolve the issue of Robert's custody, and a hearing was set for May 10, 1965, before Judge Jingold. With continued silence from the Zerwax, the investigation was frustrating to Pete and Bob. Areas needing clarification. Was Dennis up and around before he died, speaking with his dad about a broken watch, which contradicted medical opinion on what happens to a person with peritonitis? Had Dennis fallen down the stairs, or had he slipped coming out of the basement bathroom, his parents' stories conflicting? Did the gruesome wound at the base of his penis come from the scalding water accident in August 1963, or was it a new tear? Was Dennis clumsy, as Lois claimed? or as coordinated as any child, as reported by witnessing relatives in his pediatrician? Did the bruise at the tip of his penis come from the clamp-like clothespin, as reported by Sharon Cobb? Why wasn't a doctor called on Friday or Saturday when Dennis was so ill and Lois and Harold were staying up with him? Why were people interviewed now declining to give written statements, some indicating fear of retribution if they did so? And retribution by whom? Vanderwist and Kralchuk presented their summary of their investigation thus far to Police Chief Wayne Armstrong, and he showed none of his indecisiveness now. Chief Armstrong said the White Bear Lake police investigation was over. Dismayed but still fighting, Kralchuk and Vanderwist thought it was prudent to give a copy of the Jurchen file to the Ramsey County Attorney's Office. Driving five blocks away, the squad car radio squawked, telling them to turn around and come back to the chief's office. Vander Rist replied, quote, Shh, we can't understand you. Shh, we can't hear you. Shh, reception is bad here. Shh, if you can hear us, shh, we'll be out at the county attorney's office. Shh, end quote. Well, <laughs> good for them. Dropping off the file, the case was now in the hands of the county prosecutor and coroner. Interviewed by Barry Siegel, Dr. Thomas Votel became the county coroner back in 1955. The Votel was a doctor was amazing because the state law only required coroners to be 21 years of age and free of felonies, no medical training necessary. Granted, forensic pathology was in its infancy, only being recognized as a specialty in medicine since 1951. And states having elected coroners versus medical examiners remains a huge problem then as today. Mm -hmm. Dr. Votel upgraded policies, campaigned for a new coroner's building, and he liked the job, except dead children really bothered him. 
infants and toddlers with ruptured livers, torn guts, cracked heads, and parents with explanations that did not ring true. He had a dozen cases from 1961 to 1965, four kids dying of peritonitis. Veltel tried to rouse the county attorney, pragmatic Bill Randall, who pointed out that these cases were difficult as he needed to prove malicious intent, and they usually lack the key eyewitness. Frustrated, Votel began to write deferred on death certificates instead of natural causes, accidents, suicide, or homicide. Conflicted, Votel knew bowels could be ruptured by a fall. He had seen this happen in a sledding accident, but he decided to let the police sort it all out. He was still waiting in 1967 when he retired. Cause of Dennis Jurgen's death? Deferred. And that is how this came about. County Attorney Paul Lindholm knew Vanderwist and Kolchak wanted the case prosecuted, but legal issues remained. This new battered child syndrome thing was only just being written about and was not recognized under the law. If the family did testify, if story after story of abuse were presented, he still needed a witness to the cause of death to link Lois's action to the ruptured bell. If not, they'd lose in court. And the coroner was vacillating, deferred. I mean, was this even a homicide? The defense would certainly make mincemeat of this. Unless something came of Robert's custody hearing, they just didn't have a case. All of this was going on while the presentation of the All-American City Award to White Bear Lake left a great feeling in the community who enjoyed a concert by the high school band, pithy comedy sketch keeping the mood light, with Minnesota's Lieutenant Governor Alexander Keith addressing the crowd with St. Paul's WCCO-TV covering the story. Jurgen's attorney, Ed Donahue, knocked on neighbor Camille Brass's door with a question. Had she ever seen Lois Jurgen abuse her kids? Cam Brass paused. She'd heard stories from neighbors Dorothy Ingfer and the DeMars, but she personally had not seen anything, and these were private matters. No, Cam answered. Donahue repeated this conversation with neighbors up and down the street, with none having seen any such thing. A dozen of these neighbors would receive subpoenas, calling for them to testify for the Jurgens at the custody hearing. Neighbor Donna Neely was wary of Lois Jurgens, having tangled with her over kids playing too loudly. Now Donna faced a subpoena, feeling totally intimidated, especially with a police car parked outside the Jurgens' house. Message received. Lois had the law on her side. Being very pregnant, Donna asked to be excused, and she was. In court before Judge Jingold, the first thing defense attorney Ed Donahue did was to try to get Officer Bob Vanderwist removed from the spectator seats. Expecting a criminal prosecution, Donahue knew Vanderwist would be a key witness in any criminal case as Judge Jingold cut him off. Flat out, no. Police officers are permitted to sit in court, and he saw no reason to change that today for Mr. Donahue. Hmm. So what was Donahue afraid Vanderwist would learn today? Anyway, the county called witness Gladys DeMars, who said she had seen Lois yank Dennis by the ears. Quote, she'd watched Dennis's appearance wither. He looked just terrible. 
His whole face was just so old. He looked sickly, so peaked, very thin. His little face seemed too small. It just didn't appear normal to me, end quote. Lois's brother, Lloyd, spoke of bruises, black eyes, ear yankings, and forced feeding one Thanksgiving. Quote, Dennis wasn't eating his meal. I seen my sister take horseradish and made him eat this horseradish. I just seen her give him a forkful of it. She put the stuff and jammed it down his throat there so he'd swallow it. Well, he choked on it, and that's when I went into the other room. Oh, I hear him throwing up, and I heard later she was supposed to have fed this back to him. He looked like he was scared half the time. It bothered me. It really did. But I didn't stick my nose in. There was a time that I thought somebody should check it out. End quote. His wife, Donna Norton Zerwak, confirmed much of Lloyd's testimony, but added another layer to the horror. Quote, quite frequently, Lois said that she had to help him go to the toilet. He couldn't pass his stool. She said she used her finger in his rectum, and she said, fed him his stools. That's what she did to Dennis. I didn't think she was kidding. End quote. Oh, my God. Control is so vital, so critical to Lois, that she imposes on Dennis when he should poop, when she's ready for it, not when the poor little guy actually has to go. And to prevent him from peeing off schedule, she clamps his penis shut, less diapers to change that way, right? This poor little boy, my heart aches just, just thinking about this. Pathologist Dr. Robert Woodburn testified that peritonitis would leave a person in excruciating pain. The fatal injury would come only after a significant external trauma applied to the bowel, not a blow or a fall on a flat surface. And only 5 to 10% of Dennis's bruising came from the fall. At the scene, Dr. Roy Peterson said that he saw nothing unusual except for the bruises, which wasn't completely unusual because active children bruise. All right, that's called denial. If I don't see it, I don't need to deal with it. Not unexpectedly, Lois's parents supported their daughter. They said they had not seen any abuse or mistreatment. Had they neglected Robert? No. Jerome Zerwak was called to the stand. Had he seen Lois or Harold mistreat Dennis or Robert? No, he had not. County Attorney Bertrand Peritsky asked Jerome if he had spoken to anyone about the case. He answered he had spoken to Sergeant Karlchuk and Officer Vanderwist. Had he remarked that he was going to do everything in his power to get Lois off? He denied it. Reminding him that he was under oath, Jerome continued to deny it. Peritsky didn't let it drop and he called both Karlchuk and Vanderweiss to the stand, both saying Jerome Zerwick had said this, with Bob adding, quote, even if it meant his job, end quote. Lois took to the stand wearing a pillbox hat and veil. At 39 years old, she was still attractive, if somewhat tougher looking, emitting a stony, impassive expression. Utterly indignant at what was happening, she flatly denied any responsibility in Dennis's death, insisting she was a great mother. Now, under the law, Peritsky could only ask questions on matters raised during direct examination. 
where defense attorney Ed Donahue spoke very cautiously. Peritsky asked, how did she discipline her children? Answer, have him stand in a corner or sit on the chair or send him to his bedroom. Question, does Robert play in the backyard and around the neighborhood? Answer, only in the backyard because there were hot rod boys going around and she didn't want her children getting into the streets because she loved Robert very much. When Peritsky asked about Dennis, Donahue objected. On direct, he had not asked anything about Dennis, and it was beyond the scope of the direct examination. Peritsky shifted to a more subtle approach with devastating effect. Question, did Lois feel the same about Robert as she did about Dennis? Objection. Peritsky explained to Judge Jingold that he was asking about her feelings about Robert with the judge allowing it. All right, Peritsky is one good lawyer. Realize what he did here. If Peritsky can establish that both boys had a similar background with their mother feeling similarly about them, then they could make the case that Robert was in danger just as Dennis had been. Lois could only avoid this if she admitted she had not loved Dennis, which would power fuel a criminal prosecution. So with one question, he trapped Lois. Damned if I do, damned if I don't. And Ed Donahue lost his mind wanting to speak to his client, which was improper during cross-examination, the judge refusing him, as Donahue shouts to Lois, take the fifth, take the fifth. And Lois took the fifth on the grounds that answering might incriminate her. Taking the fifth is extraordinarily unusual in a child custody hearing. And a believer in the law, the judge honored it. Harold Jurgens testified, rambling on about playful wrestling matches with Robert, his love and his pride for his son, and Ed Donahue rested his case. In his ruling, Judge Jingold wrote, quote, the extent and severities of the injuries exclude that they were accidentally received and left the court with the sole inference that Dennis died as a result of a beating or beatings by Lois, end quote. However, that was not why they were gathered in court. This isn't a homicide trial. It's a child custody hearing. But the judge totally gets it. Paraphrasing him. The county attorney wasn't getting help from the White Bear Police Department. Lois's brother was on the force interfering. The welfare case was flawed. People lined up on Lois's side and the doctor was confuddled. And Harold didn't want to face who Lois was any more than anyone else did. He ruled, quote, we are going to find that a condition of neglect does exist, end quote. Ramsey County was keeping temporary legal custody of Robert who had lived with his paternal grandparents. The judge hoped Harold and Lois would consent to psychiatric evaluations. Judge Tingold would say decades later, quote, I was quite certain it was a homicide, quite certain, but it was a different time, end quote. As the hearing produced no new information, County Prosecutor Lindholm officially decided that there would be no prosecution of the Jurgens for Dennis's death. And Dennis was laid to rest in the ground at St. Mary's Cemetery. There were repercussions, though. Those who testified against Lois 
Lloyd, Donna Norton Zerwak, and June Bowl received hundreds of threatening, angry phone calls, some threatening to burn their children to death. Sugar-coated murder podcast. And we have big news. Big news. Huge news. Very, very big news. We are here to reveal the cover to our new debut book. Click, click, click. Yeah, that's the title. Click, <laughs> click, click. Who knew? It's part of a new series we're starting called the Say My Name series. Yes. We're actually going to start highlighting the victims who have been lost and forgotten in their own murders. So this is just the beginning of our adventure, and we hope that you'll be with us the entire time. Absolutely. All right, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, cue the confetti. Whee! The Jurgens began to see Dr. James T. Garvey, a psychiatrist who read the entire transcript of the custody hearing, including the judge's conclusions. Lois continued to deny everything. She was strict, and she'd punished Dennis for his own good, but he died after a fall, with no hint of grief or guilt. Dr. Garvey went to work assessing his assigned questions. Was the mistreatment of Dennis caused by mental illness or emotional disturbance? If so, would psychiatric care help? Is there evidence of hostility towards Dennis? In September, his summary report indicated that he, quote, evaluated Lois as a cold, self-righteous woman who couldn't tolerate being wrong. Generally speaking, I did not find psychiatric illness in either Mr. or Mrs. Jurgens. I do not feel psychiatric help as such is definitely indicated. I do feel that any reason for keeping the child Robert out of the home would have to be on other than psychiatric reasons, end quote. Now that surprised me. Back in court on October 14th, Dr. Garvey's evaluation muddled everything. If Lois wasn't mentally ill, how did you explain what happened to Dennis? If she was neither crazy nor a child killer, could they justify keeping Robert from the Jurgens? Judge Jingle decided that Robert would remain in the custody of Ramsey County for six months, where the Welfare Department could evaluate further. Another hearing was scheduled. In April 1966, back in court again, Beatrice Bernhagen reported on the Jurgens, including that Robert was required to look perfect when attending church, which resulted in multiple bizarre clothing changes. The court then requested that Dr. Richard Teeter do another psych evaluation on the couple, but the doctor required a full inpatient assessment. This would extend the Welfare Department's custody of Robert for another six months as Donahue blew his cork. He was worried that while the fear of prosecution was largely removed, what if Lois told Dr. Teeter something criminal? Would they reconsider? The judge, himself teetering, ordered a continuation for a month. Grudgingly, Donahue set up an inpatient psychiatric evaluation, but by Dr. Garvey, not Dr. Teeter. May 1966, Dr. Garvey repeated his evaluation. There was no psychiatric disorder, 
and no reason to prevent Robert from going home. Barry Siegel writes, quote, Donahue asked that Robert be returned to the Jurgens, but it was of no use. The tug of war had reached a standstill. The county attorney wouldn't charge murder. The psychiatrist wouldn't let the judicial system off the hook by labeling Lois as a dangerous psychotic. And Ed Donahue wouldn't expose his client to a possible prosecution, end quote. Now insisting, Judge Gingold ordered an evaluation by Dr. Teeter with Donahue resisting. And round and round it went. Three years after Dennis's death, they were back in court deciding now eight-year-old Robert's fate as Lois fell apart psychologically, suffering from insomnia, anxiety, depression, and was hospitalized several times. Gee, Lois is having trouble sleeping. I, I can't figure that one out. Murder bookies, why do you think Lois couldn't sleep? Her control is failing her. Her self-denial is fraying. Now, what about Robert? He's taken away from his folks in 1965, right? And he arrives at his grandparents' home, Bob and Irene Jurgens. Lois and Harold broke visitation rules, coming over way too often. Then Robert came down with pneumonia. And while hospitalized, his grandparents' home burnt down. So Robert next went to live with his aunt and uncle, Bonnie and Mike Welch, until Lois turned and asked her cousin, June Ball, to take him in. Now eight years old, Robert was described as very formal, adult-like, having difficulty socializing, and understood that there were certain forbidden subjects not to be discussed. But life at June Bowles Nine Horse Ranch, Stonehill, was good. A kind-hearted, easygoing woman married to her childhood sweetheart, June had been a second-grade teacher and now had her own family of five children, one adopted. Afraid of dirtying something, June taught Robert how to get muddy. With June's help, Robert relaxed some and was now rambling on about baseball, not Catholic saints. It wasn't all rosy, though. Robert drew pictures of a home with locks all over on the kitchen, the bedroom, the living room. He ground his teeth. He sleepwalked. Robert loved it when June was asked how many kids she had, and she answered six, including Robert. Lois and Harold sold their home, moving just down from the bowls, with Lois now able to give June angry feedback. Robert didn't have his gloves on at the bus stop. Robert skipped breakfast. June vowed not to let Lois get to her. Quote, you don't have to outscream her, but maybe you can outthink her. End quote. May 1969, an invitation arrived on Judge Gingold's desk. Would he be interested in sending staff to a conference by Dr. Henry Kempe on the diagnosis and care of the battered child? Archie Gingold glowed. Staff? Of course he'd send staff, but he was going to go himself. Gingold was on fire. Ten colleagues from law enforcement, social work, and mental health backgrounds joined him at the conference. And for one of them, Assistant Ramsey County Attorney John Tuohy, it would be life-altering. Back in 1959-1960, two doctors crossed paths and changed the world. Dr. Henry Kempe and Dr. Brant Steele, colleagues at the Colorado General Hospital. Dr. Kempe told Dr. Steele, quote, I've got another one of these beaten babies. 
The mother says this, the father says that, but it looks to me very clear that they did it, and I don't know why, end quote. Kempe was desperate to figure out what was going on, and he spoke to the psychiatrist, who was the chairman of the pediatrics department, Dr. Steele. Could Steele speak to the parents? It took much persuasion with Kempe finally getting Dr. Steele to look in on a three-month-old patient with a broken femur, bandages around his head after an operation for a subdural hematoma. A pleasant, attractive 21-year-old woman was friendly and nice and responsible for her baby's injuries. Distressed, Steele listened to her speak of her troubled upbringing for hours. Now on board, Steele and Kempe began collecting data. Enter a shy radiologist named John Caffey from the Columbia University X-ray Lab, who had noticed multiple fractures of the long bones in infants with chronic bleeding under the skull. How were broken legs a complication of a head injury? In a seminal 1946 paper, Caffey cited six case studies, theorizing the cause was trauma, with the origins obscure. A scattering of articles followed, focusing on infants with skeletal trauma. A 1953 paper by Kathy Protégé, Dr. Frederick Silverman, suggested that caretakers might be unaware of the injuries they inflicted carelessly, certainly denying that they were deliberate. Two years later, a team of pediatrician radiologists, Dr. Paul Woolley, Jr., and Dr. William Evans, Jr., were more blunt. Quote, Skeletal lesions are due to undesirable vectors of force, end quote. In 1957, Caffey upped the ante, suggesting the removal of abused children from the wrongdoers who should be punished. A trickle of articles began appearing, mentioning parental assault as an agent of child injuries. But it's a slow go. In 1959, Kempe submitted an article to the Society of Pediatric Medicine, which was rejected because it wasn't important enough. Dr. Kempe continued to see children within pedago whose skin lesions were clearly cigarette burns, kids with accidental burns on their buttocks, which had come from hot water dunking as a punishment after a wet diaper. Wait. Does that hot water dunking punishment sound familiar? Poor Dennis. Hence, Kempe sought out someone to explain the minds doing this, psychiatric Dr. Brandt Steele. Speaking with abusive parents for months on months, Steele identified an obvious pattern. His clients were mainstream, affluent members of Denver society, white collar, upper middle class, lawyers, members of country clubs. But as children, they had been severely abused themselves. Now parents, they were repeating what they'd learned as children. Now keep in mind, this is new. This pattern is not addressed in any psychiatric diagnostic manual at this time. Brand new. In late 1959, William Drogmuller was a senior medical student in search of a research topic. And he learned of Dr. Steele's research. Drogmuller canvassed dozens of hospitals and district attorneys across the United States about child abuse, with Kempe analyzing the data. And the data revealed that 10% of 
of emergency room trauma visits for children were due to abuse. At the 1961 annual meeting of the American Academy of Pediatrics held in Chicago, Dr. Steele, Kempe, and Silverman presented the Battered Child Syndrome, drawing a full house of a thousand people. Afterward, doctors came asking questions and sharing their concerned cases with the team. The media picked up the story and the revolution was on in earnest. July 1962, the Journal of the American Medical Association published the team's landmark paper, quote, the battered child syndrome is a term used to characterize a clinical condition in young children who have received serious physical abuse, generally from a parent or foster parent. It is a significant cause of childhood disability and death. Unfortunately, it is frequently not recognized or diagnosed and is inadequately handled by the physician because of hesitation to bring the case to the attention of the proper authorities, end quote. The response was immediate and overwhelming. By 1963, 49 states adopted specific statutes requiring physicians and others to report cases of abuse on children. The media stories included the Saturday Evening Post, Parents Who Beat Children, Life Magazine, Cry Rises from Beaten Babies, Good Housekeeping, The Shocking Price of Parent Anger, and Saving Battered Children. Popular doctor TV shows did episodes on child abuse. Awareness was rising. Three months before Dennis suffered the scalding burns, Minnesota made it mandatory for doctors and healthcare providers to notify the local police or sheriff by phone and letter of child abuse injuries. Judge Archie Jingle took note, and this is when he began his file on child abuse articles. By 1965, Minnesota added a requirement for abuse to be reported by welfare departments by phone and letter. This law went into effect six weeks after Dennis's death and two weeks after Robert Jurgen's custody hearing. At the Denver Conference on Child Abuse, Dr. Henry Kempe told attendees, Quote, we are constantly reminded that the battering parent, as a rule, loves his child very much. By and large, parents are not psychopaths, drunkards, or just plain mean. Out of a hundred, perhaps only two or three are psychotic. And doctors don't want to go to court. End quote. To the Jingold delegation, this was an eye-opener. Back home, Judge Gingold pushed every button at his disposal urging the formation of a multidisciplinary battered child response team in Ramsey County to assess all suspected cases. And three months later, it was fully operational. Well done, sir. The next step, convincing doctors that they aren't alone any longer and they could report cases without concern. Judge Jingold was a mover and a shaker here, but here comes the bizarre twist. Barry Siegel writes, quote, the legacy of Dennis Jurgen's death echoed clearly in Jingold's words. This echo made the timing of events that month all the more curious. In September 1969, just as the Ramsey County Child Abuse Team was springing to life, the judge closed the Jurgen file for good. That month, Archie Jingold decided to return Robert 
to the Georgians, end quote. But why? Answers. Dr. Garvey described Lois as, quote, an obsessive compulsive neurotic lady who does not handle pressure very well. Given her response to past events, he had serious doubts as to her emotional stability for standing any type of prolonged stress, end quote. Even after her hospitalizations, Lois remained consistent, neurotic, anxious, depressed, very self-centered, with a total lacking of introspection. Garvey concluded that Lois was getting worse and was unable to face the stress and strains of raising a young boy. Inexplicably, when asked to reconsider such a damning report, Dr. Harvey agreed, now writing that Lois had improved over the last year, was more relaxed and less rigid. He saw no danger should Robert be returned. A complete 180 and I am left speechless. When Barry Siegel spoke to Dr. Harvey 20 years later about this, he explained that Robert was older now and Harold was in a position to watch and protect the boy. Lois wasn't psychotic and a lot of mothers like this are raising children should Big Brother be yanking kids out of homes. Dr. Harvey believed Lois killed Dennis by accident. She went overboard, but it wasn't intentional. And critically to Harvey, she was never charged. Yeah, intentional or not, Dennis was murdered by that woman. Well, bless your heart, Dr. Harvey. Bless your heart. Unshakable, Judge Gingold insisted that Dr. Teeter should reevaluate Lois, which finally happened. Dr. Teeter was spot on in his description of her, checking all the compulsive rigidity boxes, concluding, quote, that a child of six would be less vulnerable and more compatible with Mrs. Jurgens in that he is a trained, compliant individual. Harold was a strong follower in this marriage, warm and tolerant in his relationship with Robert. Strong consideration should be given towards returning Robert to his adoptive home, end quote. In spite of the Kempe team's pioneering work, Lois was not seen as checking the batterer syndrome boxes. A decade later, with the onset of identification of personality disorders, a woman like Lois would be diagnosed as having borderline personality disorder, but not in 1968. Try to remember, batter child syndrome is in its infancy at this point. It's frustrating, but the revolution is coming. Let down by Dr. Teeter, Judge Gingold felt helpless. No one was fighting this battle with him. In the previous four years, Beatrice Bernhagen died of cancer, Bertrand Poritsky left for private practice, and the Jurgen's new attorney, Bill Fink, was a good pal of the judges, which meant that Judge Gingold would no longer preside over this hearing. June Bull baked a cake the day Robert was leaving her home, casting it as a celebration. Robert would be right down the street and they'd see each other often. Lois and Harold were simply beaming. June asked Lois, since Robert was used to having his bull cousins around, could she bring him over once in a while? Lois issued a firm no. They had waited a long time to have him to themselves, her response being all about Lois and not about Robert or his needs. 
Tears in June's eyes, panic welling up. She spoke to Harold. Their eyes met. Quote, Harold, you watch him. I mean it. You watch him. Harold, you take care of him. Harold's eyes were blank and mild. Of course, he said. What do you think? End quote. Subsequently, when the ball kids came by, Lois said Robert couldn't come out, nor was he allowed to see June. Twice, June and Robert ran into each other at the mailbox, June chatting away, and Robert looking over his shoulder. Was he afraid of being caught? Before they parted, June and Robert made a deal. She would stand up on the hill as his school bus went by, waving so he could see her. Right, this is just pathetic. Lois, you are a reprehensible person. The long-awaited return of Robert did not calm Lois. Unsurprisingly, Lois became more tense as the life she wanted continued to elude her. She still had insomnia, getting sleeping pills from Dr. Garvey. And he made a note in his log, quote, I was wrong on this case. She really should not have the boy, end quote. Well, no shit, Sherlock. A month after Robert's return, Lois would admit it to the psychiatric hospital again. And then finally, March 5th, 1970, the judge officially dismissed the case on the matter of Robert Gerard Jerkins. And now this takes an unbelievable turn. All right, get comfortable, murder bookies. Down in Kentucky, Alice Lou Houghton was gravely struggling to mother her brood of seven children and failing. Married to Lewis Wayne Houghton in 1954, some of her seven children were likely fathered by him. Divorced, Hopkins County social workers were worried about Alice leaving her kids alone without care or supervision. In early 1969, they were further alarmed when Alice was approaching people, offering to give her children away multiple times. In March 1969, the court granted the removal of Alice's children. Caseworker Jackie Oliver was put in charge of Renee, Grant, Michael, and Ricky Houghton, ages 9, 8, 6, and 4. Placed in foster care with Sherry and Michael Calling, the four kids were amazingly well-behaved, taking out the trash, picking up their clothes, and making their beds. They were wholesome kids, brown hair, blue-eyed. Renee loved the new clothes Sherry bought her and was protective of her brothers. Grant, the daydreamer, was eager to please and accepted any correction with ease. Mike was the most fearful when not clowning around, and Ricky, the youngest, was the most sensitive, expecting to be punished for, well, everything. Ricky cried his eyes out when he accidentally stepped on a flower. His nightmares would fade with time as he and his siblings quickly began calling the Collins mommy and daddy. But this was a temporary port and a permanent placement was needed. As much as Sherry and Michael loved the kids, their marriage was cracking, and this was no time to adopt four children. Would the kids need to be split up? A proactive Jackie Oliver wrote up what resembled a sales brochure for the Houghton kids in an effort to find adoptive parents. On the exact same day, Lois and Harold applied to adopt with Lutheran Social Services in Minnesota this time skipping Catholic services and Ramsey County Welfare Departments altogether. On paper, 
The Jurchens looked like great prospects. They attended mass regularly. Harold's work record and salary were good. They owned a home, had a savings account, life insurance. When asked to list their children, they wrote in Robert. When asked if they'd adopted before, they indicated yes. Mention of Dennis was deliberately excluded. In Kentucky, Peter Crago took over the case for Jackie Oliver, wanting more information on the Jurgens, connecting with Minneapolis Lutheran Social Services worker Robert M. Lakeson. Lakeson sent back some documentation saying, quote, Mr. Jurgens is a man who enjoys life, Mrs. Jurgens being one of 16 children, which had a real part in making her the kind of person she is. I recommend this family, end quote. Following procedures, Peter Crago sent copies of the Jurchin study to the Minneapolis Department of Public Welfare, which approves all out-of-state adoptions involving private agencies. A file on the Jurchins was found revealing information on Dennis, with Supervisor Ruth Wydell becoming alarmed. Ruth Wydell would not approve this adoption. Good for her, but wait. In Kentucky, Legson received Ruth Wydell's denial and called the Jurchins to get their side of the story. Why had they excluded information about Dennis on their application? Well, they feared how social agencies use such information against you. Well, for good reason, Lois. Jurchins lawyer Bill Fink produced the positive letters from Dr. Garvey and Teeter, one that Garvey now regretted. Bob Lakeson was now firmly in favor of the Jurchins adopting the Houghton children, with Minnesota supervisor Ruth Wydell holding out, and the fight began. With another new psychiatric assessment and Bill Fink's convincing argument that, quote, not everyone who is accused of child battery is guilty. I have no hesitancy in vouching for them, end quote. He also insinuated that a mentally ill brother-in-law made the claim of abuse against Lois and Harold. On the custody hearing, Fink wrote, quote, The charges in the petition are heinous. They were all explained by the parents, and many of them were denied. Many of them were not substantiated by proof. It's obvious that the court would not have restored Robert Jurgens to his parents if the court felt that he was in danger of any great bodily harm, end quote. Resistance crumbled as the pressure mounted. This couple was willing to take four siblings living in a boarding home since the Collins divorce. This forced Ruth and Jackie to cave. Legson gave the Jurgens the news. Come get your four new children. Oh boy. The Houghton kids were so excited to have parents and a home after so long. Life held great promise. Lois and Harold got them new clothes, sports equipment, bats, gloves, and instruments. A drum set for Grant, Mike got a trumpet, Ricky a guitar, Renee a piano, and music lessons at school began. With Robert, they formed a band, the Jerks Five, playing at nursing homes and weddings. And they won third place in the State Fair Talent Show. Bob Legson reported that the family was doing great. But the change came slowly when Lois began making rather odd demands of the kids. Closet hangers should be perfectly parallel, 
No shoe prints were allowed on the basement steps. The sofa should be moved when vacuuming as she ran her finger over surfaces searching for dust. The kids complied readily. Music, once fun, became a chore. Practice was one hour every weekday, two hours on Saturday and Sundays, four hours if they messed up. Well, who doesn't mess up practicing music? I mean, that's why it's called practice. Maybe this is what real parents were like, the kids thought. And on April 27th, 1973, the adoption of all four kids became official. Sadly, the kids came to realize they just couldn't please Lois. Escalating, Lois's anger would explode as 1972 turned into 1973, then 1974. Siegel describes Lois's unrestrained screaming morphing into body blows, first with the hand, then belt, then belt buckle. Lois grabbed ears, yanking the boys by their hair or sideburns. She made them clean their socks and underwear with an old-fashioned scrub board using an abrasive soap, just as she had as a kid. Failing to remove a stain meant wearing the underwear on one's head in public. If Ricky didn't clean his ears correctly, she'd dig into them with her nails until she drew blood. Spankings were with a metal spatula. When Renee got her period, Lois made her wrap her soiled pad in toilet paper and store them in a bag to be given to Harold for burning. Seems kind of extreme to me. Renee forgot once, with the bag dumped in front of the family and Renee standing outside barefoot in winter. Robert suffered less abuse, which caused some dissension between the siblings. But occasionally, Robert would snap at Lois when she pulled his ears. Quote, is that what you did to Dennis? End quote. The Houghton kids barely knew who Dennis was, although they visited his grave and his photo was on display in the living room with those plastic seat covers, you know, the ones you stick to in the summer. And this is a room they were not allowed in. Sometimes Harold tried to intervene for the kids, with them realizing he was scared of Lois too. When Lois threw hot coffee at Harold, he tried to restrain her with her clawing and swinging. When Lois was too busy to reprimand the kids, she told Harold to do it. He would take the kids into the basement where he would slap his own leg, encouraging the child to holler loudly. Harold took the kids to McDonald's or to a movie to escape Lois's tirades. Once, they returned to find Lois sprawled on the floor, her pills strewn about in a staged suicide attempt. With Lois abusing her medication, Dr. Garvey admitted her into the North Memorial Hospital in August 1973 to detox. Her intake report read, Lois, quote, has become much more short-tempered. The smallest things upset her. She cannot admit she is wrong and continually picks on her husband. She's been very short with the kids, even though she is aware of what she is doing and doesn't like it. He doesn't approach her sexually because she continually puts him down, end quote. Released two weeks later, Dr. Garvey's prognosis was guarded and she needed further treatment for abusing her medication, but her mood was not improved. Harold was so overwhelmed by February 1974 that Dr. Harvey put him in the hospital, and his report says the only thing wrong with him is his wife. Family counseling was begun with Father Riser, 
When the kids finally told him about the hangers and the underwear on their head, the priest spoke to Lois and Harold about it, and that was the end of family counseling. Hope crushed. All five Jurchen kids were hurt and constantly fearful. They were not allowed to go to school dances or events. Renee snuck phone calls to Lois's sister, Sharon Kopp, who befriended her at a family gathering. Talking to classmates, the Houghton kids realized, other kids don't get treated like this. Spring 1975, June and Lois, who had somewhat reconciled since Robert's return, were listening to the Jerg 5 play with Lois demanding another song, then another, then another, with June intervening. Hey, weren't the kids probably getting tired? Grant gave her a thankful look, and later June whispered to him, quote, if you ever need a place to go, come to my house, end quote. Harold finally had had enough, telling the kids he was thinking of putting Lois in a clinic, and they agreed it was a good idea. May 1st, 1975, Lois checked into Hazelden. The next five weeks were a paradise for the kids. They felt normal, skipping music rehearsal, going fishing. And Harold was likely relieved too. But when Harold told them their mother was coming home, the fear returned. But maybe it had helped her. Uh, But no. Lois responded poorly and discharged herself without the staff's approval. All right. The record on what exactly happened next is a bit muddled, but it went something like this. At 15, Robert hit rock bottom. While Robert was very attached to the Jurgens, he couldn't stand the tension and the fights. Robert knew his parents loved him, especially his dad, but he just couldn't live at home. On June 16th, 10 days after Lois came home, Robert appeared before the Washington County Family Court on a delinquency runaway petition, which placed him back in custody of the County Welfare Department. Did Washington County link this investigation to the Ramsey County welfare file? Unlikely. This, however, triggered Renee and Grant to begin an escape plan, with Grant recalling June's offer. July 9th, cutting summer school, they called her. June, quote, we don't want to go home, end quote. Mike and Ricky were nervous wrecks when they got home. Lois asked where Renee and Grant were, and they said they didn't know, causing her to explode, yanking, slapping, pulling them by their scalps out the door, across the side yard, to the car, slapping and screaming all the way. She continued to hit all through the drive to school. No one at school knew where Renee and Grant were. Arriving at June's, a flushed, angry Lois demanded to know if Renee and Grant were there. And June looked Lois in the eye, quote, they're not here, end quote. All right, I love this woman. I really do. The next morning, June drove the kids to the sheriff's office with Renee and Grant telling of the maltreatment. June handed the sheriff an envelope, which contained a clump of hair Lois had yanked out of Grant's head. The sheriff began making calls. Washington County welfare clerk, Carol Felix, was surprised by the unusual abuse call. People were still very reluctant to report abuse, fearful of the system, even after Dr. Kempe's efforts and the new laws. Carol met with Judge Howard Albertson, who was very disturbed by what Sheriff had told him, 
as he moved beyond the normal channels and intervened directly with the welfare department. Carol sat with June, Renee, and Grant and was skeptical, but open in listening and recognized battered child syndrome immediately. The angry perfectionist mother, controlling, unpleasable. Carol realized these were not rebellious teenagers and they were very fearful for their little brothers, Mike and Ricky. The same day, Carol filed a petition with Judge Albertson, placing the four of them into temporary foster care with Grant at June Bull's home and cousin Bonnie Welch taking in Renee. Investigating, Lois told Carol Felix the kids were selfish, unappreciative, granting that she and Harold did so much for them. They needed discipline and they'd get it, ignoring any talk of abuse. While counterintuitive, Mike and Ricky insisted they both wanted to remain with Lois and Harold, with Carol wondering how much pressure they'd been subjected to. June suggested Carol get a hold of the Ramsey County file to get some insight into the Jurgens. And reading, Carol got dizzy with outrage. It was all there. Dennis's placement, the death, and Carol knew it was murder. She traced the adoption process down to Kentucky to see how these four children wound up in the Jurgen home, speaking to Jackie Oliver and Peter Crago. Then she met with Sherry Collins, the original foster mom, who was now remarried as Sherry Riley. Sherry and her mother flew to Minnesota for a tearful reunion. They learned that Renee had written to Sherry with Lois intercepting her letters. Sherry then went to the Jurgens' home to see Mike and Ricky, who insisted everything was fine, even as they twitched with anxiety. Sherry was shocked. Her outgoing, loving kids were frightened animals, thinking only of survival in three short years. Furious, Carol wanted to expose a system that allowed all this damage to happen. After Lutheran Social Services and Ramsey County Welfare stammered and were unwilling to do anything, Carol decided the court was the only avenue for restitution. She put everything into a report for Judge Albertson. Back in court on September 19, 1975, Jurchin's attorney, Ed Donahue, who is beyond horrified that this was happening again, advised Lois and Harold not to resist this time. These were older kids who could fight back. Donahue also feared that this could reopen the Dennis Jurgen case. Judge Albertson spoke with Ricky and Mike in chambers, with them finally admitting they wanted to move. Their deep fear was being split up. Ricky and Mike were placed in Sherry and Jerry Riley's Kentucky home. Six months later, the court terminated the Jurgens' parental rights for all five of their adoptive children, all five, Robert included. And that concludes episode 51, The Revolution on a Death in White Bear Lake by Barry Siegel. Justice for Dennis Jurgens is coming, as you will see in episode 52. Your loss is our gain. Do not miss this groundbreaking episode that changes everything for so many children and likely save lives. And my next book choice is The Midnight Assassin, Panic, Scandal, and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer by Skip Hollinsworth. In the late 1800s, Austin, Texas, was shifting from an isolated Western outpost 
into a megapolis. But terror came in December 1884 from someone more diabolical than London's Jack the Ripper. The midnight assassin struck on moonlit nights using axes, knives, steel rods to rip apart women from every race and class. Back then, the concept of a serial killer was unknown, but this is what was happening as the killer became more brazen and citizens' panic reached a fevered pitch. An utterly terrifying true crime story I had never heard before. I always say read the book, and this is no exception. Thank you for listening. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or email me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. Check out my merch store on Spreadshop. Holidays designs are out. And happy reading, murder bookies. Source material, show notes, photographs, and snack and drink information for the Death at White Bear Lake trilogy is found on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosina, lyrics by Otto Harbach.